It is a thrill to be here. It is hard to believe that it's been three years ago since I was here and four years ago since I worked here. But as I came up Placerita Canyon Road on Monday with Mark Tatlock, I can't tell you what a sea, a wash of memories, and I don't mean a pun there, that came over me as I looked at the campus and I remembered great days and great experiences and lots of energy, lots of ministry, lots of enthusiasm, and I tasted it again when we sang this morning. I miss you. I miss being here. I miss the power of God's work in this place, and it's a joy to be back. But what is the deal with the weather? Truly, in the South, we've gone four straight weeks. We've seen the sun one time just after Christmas, and I was uh, telling the congregation Sunday night I was traveling for no other reason than just to see the sun. I saw it once when I got off the plane at Burbank on Monday. I'm looking forward to a time of good fellowship. I'm still adjusting, though. It's been four years, and I'm still getting used to life in Alabama. You know, it's different there. You know, they, uh, it's the day of CDs and cassettes, but if you remember what a 45 record sounded like at 33 speed, that's life in Alabama. It's slow. You know, it was brought blatantly to my attention when I first moved there. I had some guys from the college help me move, and, and they were being helpful, but they put my waterbed mattress around the gas tank to my motorcycle, so when I got to Alabama, the gas tank was fine, but the mattress smelled like a refinery. And so I needed a new mattress, so I went down to a large warehouse in uh, Birmingham. They were having a literal warehouse sale, and I found the mattress section, and it was good deals all over, but I couldn't find any help. And it was a Saturday afternoon, and I couldn't find any employees to help me, and I looked all over and finally found in the corner of the warehouse, tucked in the very back, four elderly women, 60-plus, 60 years of age or, or older, watching a 13-inch black-and-white screen, Alabama versus Penn State, cussing and spitting in a can. <laughs> you talk about culture shock. I mean, you know, I, can you imagine preempting the nightly news on a major network so you can see the replay of Alabama's football game on Saturday? That's Alabama. By the way, we are the national champions. I am on probation as a uh, southern gentleman last year at the men's retreat. They dubbed me Cletus. My new name is Cletus. I have a year and a half of probation to prove that I'm truly a southern man. And they entrusted and commissioned me to tell you that we are the national champions and with great pride, roll tide. <laughs> well, I'd like you to take your Bible, please, and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Our subject this week centers around commitment. I want to introduce my subject of commitment to God by sowing a few seed thoughts relative to the issue of commitment. George Barna says in the book, The Frog in the Kettle, that the fundamental crisis in the church in the 90s will center around the issue of commitment. Our society is losing the sense of what it means to commit itself to something. Employees are not committed to companies. Companies are not committed to employees. Ball players are not committed to ball teams. Ball teams are not committed to ball players. People are not committed, not committed to marriages, not committed to a particular career path, not committed to relationships. Commitment is something ailing in our society. And I want to begin by addressing the issue of commitment. And it's particularly true as the blight encounters the local church. 
Do you know that less than 12% of us read the Bible daily? 58% of us in the church who claim to know Christ don't know who preached the Sermon on the Mount. 48% of us don't know that the book of Jonah is in the Bible. 95% of us have never led anyone personally to Jesus Christ. Commitment. It's lacking. All across the community of men, and especially, I think, permeating the community of the church. You know, for a man and a woman, an average couple, to join the local church, it takes three years. People don't want to commit to anything except doing what they want to do. And I'd like you, please, to consider, as we prepare to look at Hebrews chapter 10, this seed thought with regard to the issue of commitment. It is this. Sustained commitment is the consequence of realizing and appreciating a benefit received. The Bible has a kind of theology throughout the current of New Testament truth which argues that the action called forth in me is the consequence of realizing an action or benefit toward me. Why do we love God? 1 John 4, because He first loved us. Why do we sacrifice for others? 1 John 3.16 We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us. Therefore, we ought, word of debt, to lay down our lives for one another. An action called forth as a consequence of an action received or a benefit realized. People do what they do, primarily not out of duty, but out of gratitude. Why do we forgive? Ephesians 4. Forgive one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Why do we serve? After he had washed their feet, what did he say? Do likewise. I, as an example, have loved you and served you. You do, do also. A benefit realized. An action called forth. Romans 15, why do we accept one another? Verse 7, accept one another just as Christ has accepted you. Over the holidays, I traveled to Natchez, Mississippi. Natchez is renowned because it's the center of the southern culture and the antebellum home. There are 30 antebellum plantations centered around Natchez, Mississippi. Marvelous works of architecture. You know, when you begin to see the houses, you can see why the South fought the war. I mean, if I had that kind of a lifestyle, I'd fight the war too to preserve that. But in Natchez, there's a large home called Longwood. In 1859, Dr. Haller Nutt, a plantation owner, set out to build the grandest plantation home in the South. It rises six stories above the ground. It's octagonal in shape. It's a marvel of architecture. It's huge. You walk into the center of the house, and there's an atrium which goes five stories to the ceiling. At the top, it's capped by 12 to 20 windows where the sunlight comes in, and he wanted to have natural lighting in the house, so he set mirrors in the top that would focus the light downward. And he wanted natural light in the basement, so he cut holes in the floor so that that mirrored light would travel right through. It was an architectural wonder. In 1859, he began the home. In 1860, the, world, the war started, the Civil War. The South lost. He lost his home. He lost his fortune. 
His wife managed to get the home back through some court proceedings. And she raised eight children in the basement because they couldn't afford to heat or complete the upper levels. She raised eight children in that basement. And when she was asked how she did it, and I was there on tour, so they were explaining the dynamics of this. She said, you know, I owe the raising of the children and the preserving of, of this estate to Henry. And Henry was a black slave that would have been freed because of the war who stayed on for 33 years and helped her raise her four boys and four girls and keep the estate running. And in print, emblazoned under Henry's picture in the atrium of this home, when Henry was asked why, as a freed man, he hung around, he said, because of what, in his own vernacular, Master Nut, Holler Nut, what he did for me. He cared for me. He loved me. I cared for his and loved his. I want to argue something with you by way of beginning this morning. Great actions for God are birthed out of great gratitude toward God. Sustaining commitment, I believe, will never come out of obligation. It is birthed in gratitude. I do what I do because I can't do anything else in light of gratitude for what God has done for me. A great benefit received calls forth a great action on my part, commitment towards God. Hebrews chapter 10, a great, great action, I think, which motivates sustaining commitment. I want to preach a simple message this morning. What motivates to true commitment and what motivates God about our commitment. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil that is His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Since, therefore, we have confidence because of this great benefit afforded us, since we have a great high priest, there is an action called for. What ought to motivate us to be committed to God? A great benefit rendered to us. Let's look at it, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Here's the great benefit. I, as a Christian, you has, as a Christian, now have personal, intimate access to the living God. I can go in and be where God is. Since, therefore, we have confidence to enter the holy place. Let's talk the holy place for a minute. Old Testament the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, 15 feet by 15 feet. The place where God's presence dwelt. He says in Exodus 25, 22, I'll meet you there. 
between the cherubim, upon the mercy seat. The Hebrew writers would say there abided the Shekinah, the residence of the living God, the Holy of Holies, the place where men met with God. Could you go there easily? No. One man, one time a year. Carefully, after having offered a bull for his own atonement, carefully, with great fear and reverence, he could enter in. You remember that there was tied around his ankle a cord? There were bells sewn upon his robe because he, if he entered that holy place inappropriately, he would die. They couldn't enter in to get him. They had to pull him out. Was it easy to get into the presence of God? No, it was a fearsome thing. It was a place where few went. It was a place where the average man could never go. The place where God was. Verse 24, chapter 9, talks of the holy place. Not the old tabernacle one. Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, as was the Old Testament tabernacle, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, into the holy place of heaven, now to appear in the presence of God for us. The Bible says there is another holy place, typified by the Old Testament tabernacle. It was a place where God is, the very presence of God. And watch the words of Hebrews 10.19. We as Christians, since therefore... And the book of Hebrews is a treatise about what God has done in Christ. His superior priesthood, His superior sacrifice, the superior covenant that God has made with His people. Because of all of this, you now can go to be in the presence of God. When? Any time you want to. PGA had a tour event at Shoal Creek, which is just 15 minutes up the road from where I live. A major PGA golf tournament, and someone in my church provided me gold press VIP passes. Now, with this pass, you could go anywhere. And so I arrived at the event, and they had cordoned off areas where the crowd was to be controlled because this was a huge event in our community, and we were expecting 50 60, 70,000 people a day just to travel around the golf course following the pros. But I had a pass. And wherever there was one of those cordoned areas, one of those cords and ropes that kept the crowd back, guess who could go beyond that? I could. Because I had to pass. And I got to walk over to the practice range and I got to watch Nick Faldo hit. I got to watch his swing. I heard him talk with his caddy. I talked to Ben Crenshaw. I asked Ben about putting. I met Jose Maria Alifabo. I, I, I had access. I got to stand next to Jack Nicholas as he was talking to his son who was caddying about the particular nine and the particular holes that he was concerned about. I was right there with them. I could talk with them. I could hang out with them. That, that tournament had two practice rounds and four days of, of play tournament play. How many days I was there? Six. <laughs> I know I have a job, but I had access to the pros. Now, I'm not a very good golfer, but I'm aspiring. I like to watch. I like to think. I like to talk to them. I had access. What a privilege. I was so proud. I know it's a crude illustration, 
but I know how thrilled I was to go where other people couldn't go, to be with people I wanted to be with. Do you know what Hebrews chapter 10 says? I can go where people couldn't go. I can walk into the presence of the living God with confidence. Parasia. The word is two verbal roots stuck together. One means to speak or to say, the other all. Lexically, it means to have bold plainness and freedom of speech. It's the idea where I can go and expose my heart. Can you imagine? I can go as a believer in Jesus Christ in the presence of the living God. And I can hang out with Him. I can talk with Him. I can bear my soul with Him. What a privilege. Since therefore, brethren, we can enter into the holy place with confidence because of the blood of Jesus. Chapter 9, verse 11. Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come. He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood, He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, you know this, the perfect sacrifice of God. Blood offered one time for all men. And because of that blood, washing over the sin of my life, I am atoned for. I have the freedom to go into the presence of God and talk face to face. Beloved, that's a privilege. It's unbelievable to realize I can talk, you can talk to God. You can go, how long has it been since you have been with Him? You have great privilege. Since, therefore, brethren, we can go with confidence where men could not go by a new way, a living way, alive with relationship, I can be where God is. In October, we had an evangelistic outreach to our state fair. The Alabama, Alabama State Fair is held in Birmingham, where I minister. And we purchase and rent a tent, occupy and buy a space, and we use that tent as an opportunity to take a religious survey and share the gospel. I spent several nights there ministering in that, that particular way. And it's, it's really a great opportunity. It's amazing what God can do in a little tent stuck on the side of a major corridor at the fair. But on my fourth night heading out to the fair, my wife said, would you just consider staying home tonight? I said, Karen, why? She said, I just want to be with you. I miss you. And I said, well, what do you want to do? Talk. Talk. Yeah, I just want to talk. I just want to, I just want to sit down in the living room tonight and turn everything off and put Wendy down early, our daughter. I just want to be with you. I want to talk face to face. I just want to be with you. Beloved, in the ache of every human being, I think, there is a longing to talk with God. To go one-on-one -on -one in a personal encounter with the living God and fellowship 
And do you know what the Bible teaches? You can. You have privilege with confidence to enter in. Why don't people pursue relationship more? Jan Johnson says people don't pursue intimacy of relationship. They don't want to go one-on-one and face-to-face because they're afraid. Fear is the predominant prohibitor to relationship. And what verse 19 says is there's no more fear of judgment because the judgment was poured out on the Son, the purpose of the blood. But what are the other fears that keep us from coming into intimate relationship? I think not only with people, but I think with God. She says there are three major fears which keep us from intimacy. Number one, we are afraid that you will not understand. When I share my heart with you, you may not understand me. And therefore, I don't share. I don't want to have to explain. I want you to understand. I don't want to have to justify and defend myself. I want you to understand. Notice what it says in verse 21. We have a great priest over the house of God. Since we have a great priest, turn with you would to Hebrews chapter 4. Going where God is, yeah, I can go with confidence. Is someone there that I would want to be with? Someone who understands? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Since we then have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Do you, want, do you know what I know about God and being with God? Is I am in the presence of someone who really does understand. I had a man in my office a month ago. He had just learned that his wife had been involved with another man and he sat across from my desk and he was angry. He was mad. He was frustrated. And I was trying to minister to him and call him toward a God-oriented perspective relative to his particular issue. And what a devastating thing it is to be betrayed at that level. And I'll never forget the look on his face at the end of our time together. He said to me, you know, Harry, you just don't understand. You don't know what it feels like to find out that your wife has been with another man. You don't get it. You don't understand. In essence, you can't minister to me. You, you can't relate. You can't... I can't really enjoy what I long for in this fellowship or this relationship because you don't understand. Beloved, do you know what I know about God and in the presence of God? We have a high priest who understands. I don't know what your deal is. I don't know what kind of hurt you have. I don't know what kind of background you have experienced. I don't know what kind of pain you have tasted. I don't know what kind of frustrations you have. I don't know who's hurt you. I don't know where you've messed up. I don't know where you have fallen down. But I know someone who understands. And you can go where He is and like being there. Second fear, Jan Johnson says, in terms of relationship and what prohibits 
are moving toward one another and moving toward someone else is the fear that you cannot be trusted. In other words, I'm a man just like you are. And so when you give me advice about the deep needs of my soul, who's to say you're telling the truth? Who's to say that you're right? Who's to say that that I can trust your judgment? Who's to say when I go to you with the, the real problems of my life that that I can trust you. Hebrews chapter 7. Verse 26. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests the Old Testament high priest, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Now watch verse 28. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath, the Melchizedekan oath, which came after the law, appoints a son, now underline these words, made perfect forever. Do you know why I can like being with God? Do you know why it's such a grand privilege to be able to fellowship in His presence? No fear of judgment because of the blood. And no fear that I can't trust Him in His response towards me because my high priest is perfect. No clay feet. No hidden motives. No impure activity or movement. I can trust Him. The third fear. Jan Johnson says is, we fear that the person with whom we become intimate won't always be there. One of the things that I have been shocked by, frankly, in the ministry is the number of individuals that I minister to that have been sexually abused. It's shocking. And when you minister to someone who has been hurt deeply and been betrayed at that level, and they begin to unveil their soul, if you will, in the counseling environment. And they share thoughts and hurts and pains that they've never shared with anyone else. There's that kind of bond that comes in that kind of a relationship. And then, without exception, there is a fear expressed in that environment because they become dependent upon that. And the fear is articulated or verbalized this way. I am so afraid that when I need you, you won't be there. You know, I tried to call you over the weekend. You were home. I left a message and you didn't call back. Do you know what I know about the high priest of God? He not only understands, he not only can be fully trusted, he will always be there. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 22. So much more also, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. And the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers. Why? Because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, Jesus, on the other hand, verse 24, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Hence, Also, He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, 
since he always, always, always lives to do what? To make intercession for them. Listen to me. You and I have a great benefit. We have the privilege, without fear, to go where God is. And when we're there, we are in the presence of someone we can trust who we know understands, and you know what? Who will never, ever, ever go away. Who is always accessible. Hebrews chapter 10 says, because this is true, if you'll turn back to chapter 10, since therefore we have this great privilege, it ought to motivate us to do something. And I want you to listen carefully because I have a grave concern in the kingdom of God and it is this, that our first commitment is to something other than God Himself. Commitment to service, commitment to working for God, commitment to the commission of expressing the gospel, commitment to building relationships for God, for ministering worldwide for God, for giving for God, for serving for God. Beloved, the first and fundamental commitment is not that. It is a personal commitment to a relationship with God Himself. Watch what He says. This is the heart of Hebrews. This is the first and essential exhortation to the believer who because he has a great privilege, what he's called to do. Verse 22. Because we have a high priest like Jesus. Because we have privilege to enter the holy place. Look at verse 22. Let us draw near. And if you can add the words to him. See, I have privilege to go to the holy place, and so do you. But we don't. And the call to the Christian, fundamentally as a commitment of life, birthed in the privilege and benefit afforded me, birthed out of gratitude because I can do this, God says, come to me. Be with me. Let us draw near. Come face to face. Have a personal encounter. Because you can, take advantage of it. Before I left on Monday morning real early, my daughter's four and a half. She was in that comatose state. You know, it's 4.30 in the morning. We're traveling to the Birmingham airport. We get to the airport and she's kind of catching on to what's going on because like dad's taking his golf clubs out of the car. She's taking the suitcase out of the car. And her eyes get kind of big because I guess she didn't really connect with this. And, and she said, Dad, you're going someplace, aren't you? I said, I am, hon. And she kind of shocked her into an awareness and the eyes got big and they filled full. It's the heart wrench stuff of dads who travel. And she said, Oh, please don't go. Clings to the leg. I smacked her and said, Get away from me. <laughs> I wouldn't do that. What happened in my heart? Was I mad? I was alive. 
Oh, I ached because I had to go and all of a sudden I didn't want to see the sun in Southern California so bad. But I can tell you this as a father, in my heart I was alive. Because in the eyes of a little girl was a hunger to be with her dad. In the eyes of a little girl there was the words, I want to be with you, Dad. Don't go. Can I go? What ought to motivate us to a commitment toward God is the great benefit afforded to us because of the work of Jesus Christ. And what I believe motivates the heart of God about our commitment is for us to be with Him. I don't think, biblically, there's anything that God would want more and rejoice more in than your deep desire to be personal and relational with Him. Do you know what He said? He wants you to do first. Draw near to me. Hey, the world needs Jesus. Desperately. People need food. People need clothes. People need help. People need the gospel worldwide. But God wants a commitment to Him first. And everything that you do with regard to ministry ought to be consequence of that. Because of the great privilege, let us draw near. Finally, watch the end of verse 22. I think these four phrases determine how you enter and draw near, fulfilling the commitment to be with God. Let us draw near how? With a sincere heart. Would you write the words whole heart? This is what I know about drawing near to God, says the writer of Hebrews. It happens as a consequence of two attitudes and two actions. Two attitudes. First attitude, you got to want to with your whole heart. The word sincere means one whole undivided. It's used, the word is used, Plano uses it, of a non-counterfeit coin, a genuine coin, not veneered but whole, complete. Let me tell you what doesn't let you draw near to God. A heart that says, I kind of want God, but I kind of want the world too. I had a lady in my office who was, came in, she was bumming. She was just, just de depressed and discouraged. We got to talking and she was living with a guy and, and, and her life was a wreck. And she said, and with tears coming down her face now, she said, I want to get right with God. And I said, good. Let's do that. Let's do that right now. So we prayed together and she dedicated her heart to God. And then we talked a little further about her situation and she said, I have a question to ask you. And this is right before she left. She said, my boyfriend and I were planning a trip to the Bahamas. And we were, dead, were supposed to leave next week. Do you think because of what I did today, I can still go to the Bahamas? Let me tell you what that's not. A whole heart. That says, I want God, but I want to go with my boyfriend to the Bahamas and live in sin. You can't do that and draw near to God. You can't hang on to a longing for something else. It's got to be a true heart, a whole heart, with all my being. Do you hear the words of Jeremiah? You shall seek me and find me when you search for me. What? With your whole heart. You know how you draw near to God? 
It begins with an attitude which says, I want that with all my heart. No hidden agendas, no stuff on the side. I want God more than I want anything. That's a commitment to God. That's how you draw near to God. Secondly, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance. Write down the words, full faith. The emphasis is on the idea of certainty. I can get to God when I have a whole heart wanting to be with God exclusively. And secondly, when I come with the certainty that comes out of the assurance that I'm coming based on faith, what God has done for me. You know, some of us want to get to God on the the merit system. We get to God because we did good for God today. You don't get to God that way. You get to God based on faith in what God has done for you. I met with a lady in a nursing home a couple of months ago, 78 years old, talking about her need for God. I said, Betty, what are we going to do about your sin? She said, what sin? I said, the things you've done wrong that have displeased God, the violations of God's law and character and desire. I haven't sinned. I said, Betty, then you don't need God. You don't need to exercise faith because you're completely worthy of God. She said, well, I'm more righteous than you are. I said, that's not hard. Except if my righteousness is in Christ, which is necessary. I don't get there because I'm a good guy. My confidence, my assurance, my faith is in what God has done for me. Do you know how you draw near to God? Confident in the fact that I'm not getting with God because of something I've done. It's based on faith. Thirdly, let us draw near the two attitudes, a whole heart, full assurance of faith, full faith. Two instrumental participles telling us how we draw near. Having our hearts sprinkled clean. In the Old Testament tabernacle, you know, there were seven pieces of furniture. The first piece of furniture was the brazen altar. What happened there was you would bring your sacrifice and it would be offered there for your sin. The brazen altar is where the sprinkling of the blood was done in order to allow you to move on in your trek towards the Holy of Holies. It had to do with the cleansing of the heart, the forgiveness of sin. Let me tell you what is necessary to draw near to God. Not only a whole heart, not only full faith, but a clean conscience. A clean conscience. There needs to be the confessing of sin with, which births in you the cleansing of your conscience. Do you know what's hard for us to do sometimes? Is to be honest enough with God to say, you know, I have really done wrong. It's hard sometimes to say, I'm a liar. I've cheated. I've been immoral. But if you're going to know a clean heart, 
a clean conscience. There must be confession, 1 John 1, 9, which yields forgiveness and cleansing. Otherwise, you can't go on. That happens at salvation and that has progressively continued to be benefited toward you throughout your walk in Christ. Fourthly and finally, we draw near with a whole heart, full faith, clean conscience, and clean conduct. The second piece of furniture, notice what it says, and our bodies washed with pure water. This is external. This is not the heart cleansing. This is the external, the conduct. The second piece of furniture in the tabernacle was the brazen laver. It was a pool, a basin of water where the priest would wash after having dealt with the sacrifice. Do you know what the brazen laver was made out of? Exodus 38.8 says it was made out of the looking glass of the women at the t- of, the, of the community of the tabernacle. Mirrors. Highly polished brass. You say, what's the significance of that? What are mirrors for? The cultivating of vanity. Right? Look in the mirror, do your deal, looking good, styling. That's what people do with mirrors. And yet God said, I want the vehicle of your fleshly indulgence to be used for this particular piece of furniture. I want you to trade the implement of your pleasure for a pure conduct in the Spirit with me. I want your life to be holy in its conduct. If you want to draw near to God, the things in your life that keep you from God, the implements of pleasure that prohibit intimacy with Him, have to go. But a young man in, well, late 30s, six months ago, came in and said, Harry, I'm involved with another woman. I said, how long? He said, a year. Every time I travel out of town, down to Florida, we connect. I said, well, why are you here? He said, I want to stop it. And I said, well, what do you think you need to do? And he said, well, I know the first thing I needed to do was confess it to God, and I have. And I said, what else do you think you need to do? He said, I need to cut it off. I said, how do you want to do that? He said, I want to get on the phone in your office right now with you. And I want you to hear me talk to her. And I want to cut it off. Do you know what I know? His life has turned around. His life is alive with God. His life is full of the things of God. Do you know why? Confessed and cleansed. Clean heart. And he cut off the implement of his sin. Said, no more. His life has changed. You want to draw near to God? Is that all you want to do? Full faith, is it based on His work? Is your conscience clean? (laughs) The IRS got a letter from someone which said this, I'm sending you $50. If I still can't sleep, I'll send you the balance. You know, clean conscience, you've got to have one. And you've got to have a pure life. I started our message with a story out of 1860, and I close it with one. Lake Michigan, 
a large passenger ship, Lady Elgin, floundering off the coast. A young man by the name of Ed Spencer was standing on the shore of Lake Michigan watching the foundering and the sinking of the ship. He noticed in the stormy waves a woman clinging to a piece of wreckage. He shed his coat, he entered those cold waters, and swam to her and led her to safety. Sixteen more times, the record records, Ed Spencer entered the waters and saved sixteen more lives. Ed Spencer took nearly a year to recover from the exhaustion and the physical expression of that day. The truth is, the article said, he never totally recovered and was not able to fulfill his life's dream. He died at 81. The newspaper recorded that at his death, all those years, not one of those 17 ever said, thank you. That's not right. That's not natural. To have such a great benefit rendered, that's not the right response. You know what the Hebrew writer is saying? Someone has rescued you. The most natural response in the world out of gratitude is to be with Him. You know what God wants most in your life? Fellowship with you. He wants time with you. In the French Quarter, the Sugar Bowl, New Year's Eve, the Miami Hurricanes mascot took a bullet in the cheek. He was at the hospital, seven stitches. They asked him, you going to be at the game tomorrow? He said, a bullet in the head is not going to keep me out of the sugar bowl. That's commitment. A bullet in the head can't keep me from God. That's commitment. A great benefit rendered motivating us to a commitment to God. Let us pray. Father, I thank You this morning for the provocative power of Your Word to remind us of how richly we've been blessed by the work of Your Son. Lord, we are careless with our time with You. We are captivated by issues and distractions that call for us for pleasure and activity. And Lord, we want to begin afresh and anew today to respond rightly to the great work rendered on our behalf. I pray for these. Lord, this semester, this week, they would determine I will be committed to God. It's the most natural and appropriate response in light of what He's done for me. I pray that we'll be with God. We'll draw near to Him out of a pure heart and a clean life. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much, Harry, for a great start to our conference. We have about 10 minutes to take a break, and then we're going to get started again about uh, 15 till, and uh, we'll expect to see you back in here. So take about 10 minutes, take a break, and then we'll get started about 15 till the hour. Thank you.